0: This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. You know, if you go around drive around Oregon and Washington today, you'll go into small towns where they have Babe the Blue Ox carvings and and chainsaw artworks of of Paul Bunyan, giant statues. Portland has a giant Paul Bunyan statue. You know, he became very much a Northwest icon and we didn't really think about Maine or Michigan or any of those places. But the stories that seem to have come from there, we absorbed and kind of made our own
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. I'm
0: Knute Berger.
1: And today we are here to talk about a piece of American lore that is really spread across the continent, but it does have a pretty strong uh, foothold in the Pacific Northwest too. And that is the tall tales of lumberjack Paul Bunyan.
0: Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. Few figures loom as large in Northwest lore as Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox named Babe.
1: Uh, even though I live under a rock, I, I too know who Paul Bunyan is, sort of. Because because I feel like he was everywhere. I just have these vague memories of, you know, uh, kids books and cartoons.
0: Paul Bunyan could clear large wooded areas with a single stroke of his
1: large, sharp axe. And little scraps. I have little scraps of, like, Disney-type songs in my head, and I, I don't really know. Probably, you know, as a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, I I, uh, I must have sort of absorbed Paul Bunyan material through osmosis because it's absolutely everywhere. Um, <laughs> and it's really only after watching the Moss Backs Northwest video that I had any real inkling of how incredibly popular he really Was and is.
0: (laughs) There are children's books, campfire stories, cartoons, murals, giant Paul Bunyan statues, festivals, poems. There is even a Paul Bunyan opera. (laughs)
1: Which, by the way, you really should watch. If you haven't already seen it, we suggest you stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page at Crosscut.com and check it out.
0: Folklore or fake lore? It it turns out to be a really interesting story, and the story begins with stories. I mean, Paul Bunyan is this legendary logger. Uh, He and his blue ox babe, uh, you know, would stride through America, and they could, uh, you know, chop down forests. They could solve any problem. They could reshape the landscape. And uh, I grew up with Paul Bunyan stories. I probably watched the same Disney cartoons. And, and uh, you know, there were school books and story time, tales of Paul Bunyan. And when I was at summer camp, I went to summer camp up in uh, near Granite Falls, Washington. And it was in a former logging area, been logged in the 19th century. And there were all kinds of, like in the woods, there were all kinds of old logging equipment and that kind of thing. And we learned... Uh, you know, forest skills. I mean, we went camping, but we we also learned, like, how to use a double person saw, and, you know, you learned how to chop wood, and we had competitions, like little lumberjack festivals. The guy who ran the camp, you know, had giant flannel shirt, kind of like Paul, and he was a really tall guy, kind of Paul Bunyan-esque. And um, every summer, Uh, we would have a Paul Bunyan campfire. And we'd go out into the woods in this big campfire circle and light the fire. And then a kid from each of the tents or groups uh, was chosen to stand up in front of the whole camp and tell a Paul Bunyan story. Wow. And so in 19—this would have been like 1963, I think, or way back then—I was picked by my tent to tell a a Paul Bunyan story. And this camp, uh, Hidden Valley Camp, for those people who want to know, had a, um, this kind of uh, dank brown pond, and uh, it was called Purdy Creek. And so the story that I told was that Paul Bunyan had come through this area during the logging days and was chewing tobacco. Oh. And, and Babe the Blue Ox was with him. And he spit the tobacco juice into one of Babe's footprints and looked at it and said, ain't that pretty? And that's how our creek got its name. You know, so I became a, uh, yeah, a, a relator of local Paul Bunyan lore. So, you know, I, I haven't thought about much Paul Bunyan in, you know, recent years. And maybe one reason is that loggers aren't quite what they used to be and mm-hmm. you know, as symbols. Um, but I got a letter from a part-time teacher who does story times and writing workshops with little kids, grade schoolers. And she wanted to know if uh, she wanted to teach them to write a story about uh, a legend. Mm-hmm. And she said, are there any Paul Bunyan stories about... Seattle. Oh. And I thought, you know, I, I don't remember actually ever hearing any stories about Seattle. And man, I started looking into it. I, I contacted the Seattle Public Library. I said, do you guys, you know, they have a Paul Bunyan day or used to um, at the Seattle Public Library. And they have a their children's library has a bunch of Paul Bunyan stuff. And uh, you know, I said, do you have any any stories about Seattle? And uh, yeah, they told me about a couple of books. And one was a book by a woman, local woman named Esther Shepard. And her papers are at the University of Washington. She was a very successful writer. And in the 1920s, she wrote a book of Paul Bunyan tales. And in that book, it contains uh, several chapters which are about, you know, Paul Bunyan dragging his axe and digging Hood Canal or... uh, digging Elliott Bay and using the dirt to make Mount Rainier. And there, and and there's even, you know, a story of him up in Skagit Flats. There's a story in eastern Washington. And these were stories that she said that she had accumulated from local loggers. These were things that local loggers told each other.
1: Mm. So it's not like they're presented as truth, but, but are they in fact... Presented as truly collected, like it's not like she thought them up. She she doesn't present yeah, them as no, fiction.
0: No, uh, no, she she wasn't necessarily making up stories, although she was shaping them. She actually talks in the introduction of the book about how when these stories were related from loggers to each other, they were always presented as being true. Mm-hmm. That was part of the um, the affect of the story. Was uh, everybody sitting around the the uh, bunkhouse? And somebody says, "Well, I used to work with this guy named Paul Bunyan, and he blah blah blah." and so every story had this kind of uh, authenticity to it, even though everybody knew it was false okay huh. but the but the stories were you know entertaining, they were often about you know how the loggers uh, and Paul personification of a logger um, was solving problems.
1: Babe and Paul helped the lumberjacks solve all sorts of problems. You know,
0: their job, you know, the bosses weren't solving problems. We were solving problems. And we could get anything done that the bosses wanted, even Mm -hmm. if it was unreasonable.
1: Once, there was a river that was full of twists and turns. Sometimes the trees would get stuck in the turns and never make it downstream to the sawmill. But Paul Bunyan thought of a way to fix that.
0: So she she frames it uh, in, in that way. And this is an interesting part of the story is, you know, what what were the origins of Paul Bunyan and uh, who told these stories, if anyone. And so it was presented as, you know, these are the stories that, you know, the guys in the woods are telling each other. So I found that really fascinating and I began to kind of dig into that. And then the story got way more complicated than I was expecting. Of course. Always does. So, her book was published in the early 1920s. At the same time, another Seattle and or Northwest author, James Stevens, wrote a book about Paul Bunyan. And this was much more of a kind of in the in the realm of mythological, deeper, bigger, Homeric kind of Uh, Paul Bunyan story. And this gets to sort of the time that these things were happening. So if you go back, Paul Bunyan's origins appear to be maybe as early as the mid-19th century. Uh, A minor character, possibly based on a uh, French-Canadian figure, usually as a humorous kind of person, and not at all the sort of big, you know, larger-than-life fellow that we all got to know.
1: Huh? Do
0: we know and anything
1: more about that?
0: There's there's a whole bunch of different theories about who it was based on, but what most people agree on is that the early stories entered into the sort of popular culture out of uh, Quebec and Maine in in the Northeast. And then they follow a path which is interesting because Paul Bunyan is taking on the biggest task well, as you as you're denuding <laughs> New England and <clears throat> whatnot, where do you move? You move to the Upper Midwest, and this is where you have the sort of a lot of logger lore. You have the Scandinavian immigrants who who are working in the logging camps, and this is where sort of the Paul Bunyan story really catches fire. He becomes a, I think, a more important figure. People from Minnesota or Michigan will swear that they are the origin place of Paul Bunyan. Mm -hmm. Everybody along the road sort of claims him as originating there. Right. And um, eventually he works his way out to the Pacific coast where, of course, you've got the coast redwoods. You have the old growth forest of the Northwest. And so the stories follow him out to the West Coast, and so suddenly Paul is the ultimate lumber-sexual Northwesterner. You know, he's got the plaid shirt, you know, we have stories about what he did out here. Now, nobody really believes these stories, you know. Paul Bunyan did not create the Columbia River or... But, you know, it becomes part of this sort of uh, tall tales, which is part of what we might think of as Western folklore. Mm -hmm. The stories of the 19th century where the exaggerated frontiersman, the the classic example is Davy Crockett, Mm -hmm. you know, which kids in the 50s remember the Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Yeah. He he killed a bar when he was only three, you know, that kind of thing. Well, this (laughs) this kind of tall tale telling has roots in other aspects of of um, American culture. So it's interesting because he still wasn't famous until around around World War I. Huh. It doesn't. It's not necessarily connected to the war, but there was a logging company in California that compiled some Paul Bunyan stories into a basically a sales catalog, a promotional thing, and this became popular. And then people started talking about Paul Bunyan's stories. And the newspapers in Seattle and other places, James Stevens wrote about Paul Bunyan and, and was asked to contribute articles to a, <clears throat> The American Mercury, edited by H.L. Mencken. Mm-hmm. And, and it, he kind of, you know, Paul hit an area in that sort of, I would say, the, the 1920s and 30s in particular, where after World War I, America was seeking some sort of authentic identity of its own. Mm. You know, we we we'd been victorious in World War 1, we were kind of a world power. But you have uh, a lot of cultural disruption, you have a resurgence of anti-immigration, then you have this term of uh, Americanized, Americanization, and I think Paul Bunyan um is part of this desire, political desire, to create a unique, rooted national identity figure at at that particular time. Paul's emergence seemed to feed a Euro-American appetite for epic history. An article in the Seattle P.I. called Bunyan, quote, America's only folklore character. And then he kind of goes hog wild in in the popular culture. So my, uh, my uh, paternal grandfather, who was also named Canute Berger, was an inventor of, of logging equipment, among other things. Mm-hmm. And so he was an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and he created some very important uh, hauling equipment and that kind of thing that was used in the lumber camps. And my father, through, I think, connections with his father, had summer jobs for a couple of years in Olympic Peninsula timber camps and this was the 1930s this is um, before helmets before safety equipment um, mm-hmm. a lot of the logging is still by hand it hasn't converted to you know chainsaws and and uh, a lot of um, advanced mechanization and he told stories at the dinner table about what life was like out in uh, Nia Bay and in, in the 1930s when he was working in the camps. Now, my father wasn't—he was a college boy. He wasn't, you know, particularly robust. He had, you know, kind of a skinny guy with glasses, and he mm-hmm. uh, he worked on a survey crew one summer, I think, and then another time he was uh, assistant to the camp doctor, and so he saw a lot of stuff. And it was interesting because his stories of life in the logging camp were—there was no mythology. There was no Paul Bunyan. He, he experienced the, these camps as raw, crude, unkind. Um, hmm. He said there would be these times during the, the months he was out there where suddenly everyone would disappear from the bunkhouse at night. And you would go to a field or a clear-cut area and would just have a mass brawl. They would just beat the holy you know what out of each other, wow. and uh, you know, and then the next day they were back at breakfast and ready to go to work. There was a lot of you know blowing off of steam. You know, his his logging stories uh, were often about death and injury, guys blowing all their wages in a bordello outside of Port Angeles and that kind of thing. There was none of the romance, but. Mm. We were fascinated by these stories because of the sort of danger involved and the things that he saw that you wouldn't see. So we grew up with a very non-romantic account of what working in a logging camp was like. Yet on the other hand, in school, we were getting this other completely different message, but it was almost like they were just two different worlds. We'll be right back. Support for the Mossback podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival, happening online and in Seattle May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year. Featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com festival. So what kind of stories did loggers actually tell each other? Mm -hmm. And is Paul Bunyan a kind of natural folklore that emerged from these these logging groups as a kind of oral history and then took on a larger life? Or is it something that has maybe a a tiny root in, in that, but is mostly just by promoters, authors, people trying to sell something or use Paul and Babe as um, avatars of whatever they're pushing, whatever politics or commercial product they're pushing. And one of the reasons this debate came up was there was a guy who's one of the sort of fathers of American folklore studies academically, Richard Corson. And he said, look, I've talked to all these loggers. They never talk about Paul Bunyan. They're talking about sex and death and injury and stuff related to their work. They're not sitting around telling epic Homeric, (laughs) you know, tales. (laughs) And, and so, uh, he wrote a book where he attacked, uh, James Stevens, uh, the author basically saying, you know, you're, you're just making all this stuff up and you're, You're turning it into its literature. It's not folklore. It's not genuine. And he coined the term fake lore. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so this debate then raged as to what is folklore, what is fake lore, and is Paul Bunyan, which side of that debate is he on?
1: Mm -hmm. Right, which is, I, I can see how that's an enduring debate and a complex one, because folklore in itself... Um, where do you draw the line exactly, I guess is the question. I mean, what is genuine? What counts as authentic? But it's like, how do we prove that anyway? <laughs> right. Well,
0: it, well, that was the interesting thing because I, I talked to a number of scholars who teach folklore at the university level. One is uh, a guy named Robert Walls, who's at Notre Dame and knows a lot about the Northwest, has connections here. But he he wrote a fast thesis, 700 page thesis about Paul Bunyan, you know, and he says, well, nowadays, you know, this was a raging debate, you know, back in the the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. But now people kind of question all the categories. It's sort of like, well, what is folk? What is lore? What is fake? Mm -hmm. You know, what if you're talking about folklore, the idea is that there's a certain kind of authenticity and lack of outside influence that kind of creates an oral culture that then kind of turns into the subject of you know, folkloric researchers who come and record. And, you know, if you think about it, in the, in the time Paul Bunyan sort of burst on the scene, this was the period when people were discovering folk music, mm. when they were recording the blues, they are recording uh, country music, they're looking, I think, for this very thing, this this thing that says this is a true, only we've produced it culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that but it, like you say, it's where you draw the line. And Paul Bunyan complicated that further because he became such a a vessel for popular culture, you know in the thirties uh, Paul Bunyan is used as both pro and anti-union kind of icon uh, yeah. you know the anti-union is is sort of you know Paul doesn't need a union he can solve all these problems on his own and the other side uh people socialists and and whatnot are using Paul Bunyan as you know the the absolute uh, personification of the working man. Mm-hmm. During the New Deal, the WPA, Paul Bunyan murals were painted all over the place. There's some here in Washington, but they're all over the country. Of uh, this, you know, this massive figure and his ox, and they're, you know, plowing the land or chopping trees, and and so he, it was this symbol of progress, this symbol of problem solving, as only Americans can. You know, only Americans can are up to the task of getting getting us out of the Depression. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so using him for
1: um, a- anything that he seemed to fit. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: But there there were people who were interested in him as, as for artistic purposes and a lot of it to the same purpose of i think creating an american culture that felt like for the whites felt indigenous mm-hmm. you know and so you have carl sandberg uh, robert frost and of all people the you know the british author wh auden mm-hmm. writing about paul bunyan and uh-huh. in in the case of auden he was the one that wrote the libretto for this Paul Bunyan operetta <laughs> that was funded by uh, the New Deal, that by the WPA. And so you had W.H. Auden writing this Paul Bunyan opera. You had Benjamin Britten writing mm-hmm. the music. Wow. and uh, And then you had like the Roosevelt administration funding it. And it absolutely bombed, by the way. Um, (laughs) Paul (laughs) Bunyan actually doesn't appear in the opera, but he's this kind of, you know, spiritual presence. But they're dancing loggers and all, (laughs) all kinds of things.
1: Oh, man. Well, that's, wow, that's interesting. I, yeah, I didn't realize it was even, you know, got federal funding <laughs> as well, which sort of, I don't know, it feels like a little bit of a feather in the cap of the fake lore argument that this is a, a lot of his, you know, explosion of popularity in the early 20th century had a lot to do with propaganda. To me, I, I, I can't help but feel really conflicted about it. What Paul Bunyan kind of represents, not only just straight up cutting down the forests, taming the land, quote unquote, but also this westward movement of the early U.S. settlers and, you know, manifest destiny and this idea, you know, that white people had that they were like, well, this is totally ours, definitely ours, and we're absolutely destined to take it, of course. Well, of course, Paul Bunyan was a, an attractive figure for that. It strikes me as problematic, I guess,
0: <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no indigenous people, there are no immigrants, uh, certainly immigrants of color in these stories the the assumption as you say is paul bunyan moves to an area that's a blank slate mm-hmm. there's nothing there there's no the wildlife the people the you know the native people anybody else you know he comes into these areas and can do whatever he wants and <clears throat> or whatever he's told to do mm-hmm. And he and Babe, uh, you know, go through just cutting vast swaths of forest down. And certainly there's no sense of what comes after, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, suburbs, urbanization, pollution. uh, None of these stories deal with global warming. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's some later stories uh, or later sort of propaganda use, I guess, if you want to say, where Paul promotes uh, the forest as a resource, therefore worth protecting. And this Mm -hmm. is the old sort of Smokey the Bear thing, which is, you know, we're saving forest fires because, you know, we're we're trying to eliminate forest fires because, you know, how much timber goes up in flames every year and what it's worth. You know, Mm -hmm. that was sort of the original impetus for, you know, having a forest service, having firefighting capabilities and that kind of thing. Hmm. And Paul is seen then as sort of a, a representative of companies that are doing sensible forestry. They're replanting, or they're uh, they're cu- you know they're cutting sustainably, and that kind of thing. Hmm. The other interesting thing I think too is when you think about, well, is he folklore? Is he propaganda? What is he? You know, you can be all those things. To me, he's more comparable to say Superman or Wonder Woman or the, the Marvel Universe in the sense that, you know, he's, he's appealing to these sort of really basic archetypes in our, in our culture. But, you know, I mean, people in the, back in the day, people were saying, well, he's, he's the new Hercules or he's the new King Arthur. Or, he's the new Tor. You know, they were comparing him to Norse gods and, and things like that. But I think he's really much more in this category of a folkish figure that is really a literary creation and then a promotional creation, all kind of mushed together. And there's actually a Marvel comic book where Captain America comes into this space where there's this primitive uh, old growth forest. And who emerges from the forest to greet Captain America, you know, is Paul Bunyan. So he does live on in in our culture. He pops up in various places and and I think he'll continue to morph. But he's got a lot to answer for.
1: Right. Don't you think? <laughs> That's the only thing. I, I I do have a lot of questions for him, really. I mean, I can't really look away from all the things he was lauded for and the sort of origins of where he would come from and why white America in particular would be really interested in promoting him unquestioningly, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of complications there for me. But then as a super-sized, all-powerful fantasy, I can see how that's kind of fun and appealing.
0: The fantasy world in our culture is expanding at a rapid rate, right? <laughs> yeah. Fantasy games, fantasy TV shows. Mm-hmm. People are living in a fantasy world. Constantly, and both in the political realm and in the literary realm and in the in the interactive game realm, you know, and I think, you know, Paul will probably bounce around and people will try him out like, well, does this work? Mm-hmm. But he's got a lot of competition now, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think culturally we're just really experimenting in the same space that Paul emerged from, at least partly. mm mm-hmm. You know, we're experimenting in that space and, you know, we're also kind of pushing like, well, how far can you have a productive society or a, a, a constant society when half the people uh, are living in a fantasy world? You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the deeper, you know, the deeper issue that we're faced with.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. What actually is the metaverse?
1: <laughs> another topic for another podcast episode. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Editorial assistance from Mason Bryan. Cover art by Greg Cohen. And many thanks to engineer Resty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and we'll be back soon with another episode.